Okay, we're going to be back in Acts chapter number four again. We've been in Acts four for a few weeks now. And um, in our study in Acts, what we've been doing, we've been following uh, following the church from the uh, uh, time of Jesus' resurrection, where he gave out the Great Commission and told them to be witnesses into all the world. And we have went through and saw how they were discouraged, they were perplexed, they were trying to figure out what to do. Uh, leading up to uh, Jesus' instructions and all, and the the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and empowered them and guided them and directed them and wrought great works through them. I said early on that we could call, instead of Acts of the Apostles, it's Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because if we think that we can do anything by ourselves, of our own abilities and our own talents, then we are sadly mistaken we can't do anything without him, without God, without his spirit. And so whenever the Holy Spirit came and empowered them and enabled them, it gave them a new direction. It was uh, a, a new life to the, the body of believers there so that they were enabled, they were indwelled and able to do what God had left them here to do. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And so as we've been following this, uh, they uh, have Peter preach the first uh the first day they're on Pentecost and thousands believe and are saved. And then it says there's added to the church daily, such as should be saved. And then we find that they are all gathering together, meeting together in the temple. And as they come into the beautiful gate one day, Peter and John run into a lame man. And as they run into the lame man who is begging and just trying to get enough sustenance to make him another day, uh, they said, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength, and he was able to uh, walk. He was able to leap and jump and praise the Lord. And this is going to draw lots of attention to this new group of believers. And we saw that uh, last week that there was conflict that arose. They had a conflict of authority within the, the very uh, young infant church there, whenever they were commanded to no longer preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And that was in conflict with what Jesus had told them to do. And so they had a choice that they had to make. What authority am I going to listen to? Because generally, uh, the the authority of man is going to coincide, it is going to get along with the authority of God. The Bible says that uh, all the authorities are ordained of God. And so generally, they're going to get along with one another. And most of the things that the government uh, commands that we do is in line with God's scripture. But the longer it goes, the more things are going to be in contradiction and conflict with scripture. And for us as Christians, we have to make a decision of who are we going to listen to. And so with that, Peter and John said, uh, whether it be right to hearken unto men or to obey men rather than God, you decide. And so basically they were saying, it doesn't matter what you say. If it contradicts what God has told me, I'm going to follow God and allow him to deal with the consequences. They're going to trust him. They were taking the stand of the three Hebrews back in the book of Daniel, whenever they said, our God is able to deliver us. But if not, know that we still aren't going to bow down. And so they humbly, respectfully denied the orders of the government in order to obey God. 
It wasn't they started an uprising and a protest and all of these things. They said, we're just going to do what's right, no matter what anyone else says. And honestly, that is a good approach in our Christian lives, is to determine in our hearts and in our minds, well ahead of time, that whatever the Bible says, we will do. Whatever God's Word tells us, we will obey. And whenever it comes in conflict with authorities, whether it be our bosses at work or the government at large, that either way, whenever there is a conflict, we are going to obey God, and we are going to be faithful to Him, and we are going to trust Him through those circumstances. We are going to still continue to keep our testimony. We are going to handle ourselves in a godly manner. We're not going to be uh, led of pride or anger or vengeance, but instead we are going to behave ourselves in a Christ-honoring way, obeying the Lord that we have trusted, the one who has died and rose again. And so anyway, they had determined to do this, but it tells us here in chapter 4, about halfway through, that the religious leaders threatened them. They gave them many threats and uh, told them that they were not to do this anymore. They made it clear that there was going to be consequences. So whenever that happens, whenever you are at odds against the government, whenever you are obeying God rather than men, what is going to be your reaction in your heart and your mind? Think about yourself. I mean, what are you going to do if the government says you can't do that anymore or else there's going to be consequences? You're going to obey God, but what's going to be going on in your mind and your heart? Fear, to a certain extent. There's going to be fear. Definitely fear, right? There may be anger and resentment. You're going to... Uh, be tempted, like we talked about last week, to just uh, denounce the entire government and uh, go almost on a tirade or rebellious against, depending on your temperament and how you are, right? But one unjust law doesn't uh, undo all the rest of them, does it? Okay. But fear is going to be one of the big ones. Anger will be another one. Uh, There's going to be unease. There's going to be doubts that come in, right? You're going to say, okay, I'm taking a stand And I believe God will, but will he really? There was the one man that said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Can you identify with that a little bit? In a situation like that, you'd be like, okay, God, I'm stepping out on faith, but I'm not sure of the ground I'm stepping on. I'm not sure that you're going to catch me whenever I step out on faith. And so there's going to be doubts. There's going to be fear. There's going to be a temptation for us to shrink back. There's going to be a temptation to compromise, right? There's all kinds of temptations that's going to come about. And so how did the first century believers, how did the apostles handle this? And we often think of the apostles as being super spiritual, super Christians, right? We think they had it all together and had it all under control. We forget that it was just days and weeks before this that Peter was denying Christ, that he was returning back to his old life, that he thought that God was done with him, that he was taking out swords and trying to cut off ears, right? It wasn't that long before this. So Peter, even though the Holy Spirit came, it wasn't just some kind of a magical transformation in an instant that they never struggled, never had trouble, never had any problems after that. Instead, what we find that happens is they are normal Christians, right? 
And I think that's one of the important things in us reading and studying the Bible is that we find out that a lot of our ideas and misconceptions about the Word of God give us great trouble and give us great pause in our Christian walk because whenever we actually read the Word of God and see what God was doing and what His people were doing, it gives us clarity. It lets us know that they were just average, ordinary humans, right? They weren't the elite. They weren't the special forces, okay? And so whenever we find Peter and the rest of them here at odds with the government, the ones who have just crucified the Son of God, right? That adds a degree of fear to it, right? We know that they're willing to persecute up to the point of death. And so how are they going to respond? And that's what we're going to look at today because the conflict without is going to bring conflict within, okay? And so in uh, Acts chapter number 4, verse number 23, it says, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard, they lifted up their voice to God. Now, just stopping for just a second to point something out here. You notice here it says they lifted up their, plural, voice, singular. That shows their unity. They all together were lifting up as one voice. Okay? They are praying together here. But anyway, and when they had heard that they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ for of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed and... Uh, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common and great power gave the apostles and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of these things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who uh, by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so as we look at this passage, we find their reaction to these threatenings and this external conflict that was going on. There was internal conflict that was happening. They are praying for boldness because at that time, they are in fear and they are in doubt. 
They are worried. They are concerned. God, this is just getting started, and it looks as if they may finish before finish it before it takes off. God, we are trying our best to serve you. We are trying to follow you boldly, but if they killed you, they will kill us. How do we obey you whenever we have all of these things going on around us? How do we continue to follow you and continue to be faithful even whenever there is so much turmoil and uncertainty? And so that was their question. That was what they had going on in their minds. But what they ended up doing, of course, it says that the ones who were threatened went and told the rest of the believers. This is something that is very important, something that we need to know, is that Satan tries to separate us. He tries to get us off on our own. Uh, Anyone who's ever been around sheep or livestock, it's always the one that's by itself that is at the most danger. We can turn back to the Old Testament. We can look at Elijah whenever he said, I, only I am left alone and they seek my life to take it away. And he was begging God. He was basically the suicidal prophet. He said, God, just kill me. Okay. That was his desire because he felt as if he was all alone. He was separated out. And so whenever they are in this time of doubt and of fear, they go and they find uh, a place of refreshing, a place of strength with other fellow believers, and they make sure to surround themselves by other people of like faith, other people who are trusting in the same God, because there is strength in numbers, right? Whenever the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, it's because that as the days are approaching, we're going to need one another that much more. Whenever the world becomes more hostile, more ungodly, whenever Christianity is less accepted, whenever laws are being passed that are ungodly, whenever we are commanded to do things that are against God's will and against God's word, we are going to need others to bond together with, to draw strength and encouragement from. The church is meant primarily to be for the believers, right? A lot of times it becomes almost a place of evangelism. Bring the lost in here, they'll hear the gospel, try to get them saved. But this is actually supposed to be a place of strength and encouragement and discipleship so that whenever you leave these walls, you can live it out in this world and in word and in deed be a light and be a witness to those that you come in contact with every day. That is the way that it was intended to be. And so we come together for strength, for encouragement, and you see that they were emboldened through this time of togetherness. But it wasn't just the fact that they were together. What were they doing whenever they were together? They were praying. They were praying. They were calling out to God. And if you look at the contents of their prayer, they are praying. But here a lot of times we have the idea that prayer is to try to change God's mind, right? We're trying to beg God to do things our way. That's not biblical. Sometimes we can. I mean, Moses changed God's mind. Uh, Abraham changed God's mind on different times, right? But that's not our primary purpose in prayer. Prayer actually bends our hearts and our minds toward God rather than the other way around. And so as they begin praying, the first thing that they begin to recall is the, the power of God. They said, you are the one who created all things. You are the one that made all things. You are the one that everything came into being at his voice, at his words. Okay? And so we see the power of God on display there. Mm -hmm. 
And so the power of God is on display. And notice what he's saying here in verse number 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Whenever we look at all creation, it testifies of God's glory, of his power, of his splendor, right? Why is it that his, the fact that he has created all things is so much under attack today? Why is it that evolution is preached and proclaimed so much today? It's because all of creation testifies of God. And in their efforts to erase God out of men's minds and to push humanism in our worlds, in order to render us powerless and render us hopeless, they are trying to do away with the fact that God made everything. Because if you look at the world, it shows us how much in control he is, how much power he has, how much ability he has, and we belong to him. We are his children, and he has taken the responsibility of guiding us, of protecting us, of providing for us, and we look at him as who he is, and whenever we see that, we can become emboldened, knowing that we are safely in the palm of his hand, right? Another thing that we see in this, in verse 25, he says, "By Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And so he is recounting how it was prophesied. He is hearkening back to the word of God. These are things that were written in the Old Testament. And so we have the testimony of creation. We have the testimony of God's word. And so they are remembering the scriptures. They are remembering how things were foretold. And it shows us if they were foretold, they were foreordained. God had known this was going to happen before it ever happened, right? And so all the things that they have just went through, all the things that we are celebrating right now with Easter and resurrection and all, they are now getting clarity on. They are now looking back and saying, God knew it was going to happen. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't something that these rulers that we are afraid of was able to do of their own power. Instead, even the things that they have done were told ahead of time and were ordered of God. We find that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? And so whenever they are praying here, they said, we are fearful, we are afraid, we are being threatened, but we are servants of the God who created all things. And these people that we are afraid of have done the will of God. God is in control. He is capable of setting things in order, in place, so that his will is accomplished. These men thought that they were going against God. They, these men thought that they were crucifying the Son of God out of their own means and out of their own uh, desires, but instead they were fulfilling prophecy to a T. Right? Yes. And so whenever we see God's control over the events of time, when we see how God has orchestrated stuff, whenever we see how prophecies have been fulfilled time and time again, we look at it and say, okay, even whenever it seems like everything is out of control, God is still in control. Right? And so in their lives, they said this place and time that we're at right now, as we are being threatened, as we are uh, being pressured to turn away from God and to cower to mankind, 
we realize that God is in control. God knows about all of this, and he can work all these things together for our good and for his glory. And so it says, For of the truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Even whenever Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said, Do you not know that I have the power to kill you and I have the power to let you go? And Jesus tells him, You have no power except what is given you of God. And so these disciples, these apostles, were saying, once again, they can do nothing unless God allows it. We are safely in God's hand. And that doesn't just apply to them, that applies to us. That doesn't make us proud, that doesn't make us arrogant, doesn't make us boastful. It should humble us, it should strengthen our faith, it should draw us close to Him. Because it's Him that does it, not us. Okay? And so they bring their concerns before the Lord, verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. They said, God, you heard what they said. You're fully aware of it. You know what happened. Behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Now, here's where I think it really gets good. Okay. It's not so much what they said as what they didn't say. If we were in their circumstances, if we were in their situation, what would you be praying for? Be honest. <laughs> Don't pull the spiritual card on me. Protection. Okay. Vengeance. What? Vengeance. Vengeance. <laughs> Strike him dead. And that's that's a, that's a very good point because just not too long before this, uh, whenever Jesus was still on the earth, he and his disciples went into a town, I believe it was in Samaria, and they refused, they rejected him, didn't even want him to come in. And what were the disciples wanting to do? I want to call down fire from heaven, fry him like bacon, right? That was what they wanted. And isn't that what our carnal flesh wants? Whenever the enemy rears his ugly head, fry him, God. Yeah, we want vengeance. But, but... Whenever the disciples did that, Jesus says, you know not what spirit you have, right? Yeah. What, what spirit you're of. He says, you're not acting like me. You're acting like the devil, basically, is what he's telling them. Yeah. Because the devil comes to kill and to steal and to devour. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. He wants to destroy. He wants things pulled down. He wants chaos. But Jesus even wanted the salvation of Pontius Pilate. Why do you think he dealt with him so tenderly? He was revealing himself, revealing God, even to the one who was going to sign his death warrant. Yeah. Okay? Whenever he stood before Annas and Caiaphas, he wanted them saved as well. Yeah. He wanted Judas to be saved. He knew it wasn't going to happen. And he dealt with him, pled with him tenderly all the way through. Right? There is not a single soul that God delights to cast into hell. But how many souls is there that you would delight to see go to hell? You don't have to answer that one out loud. <laughs> and so whenever it came to this, rather than him praying and these guys praying, God clean house, God wipe them out. They don't, they don't say that. They don't desire that. 
What's something else that would come to our minds? Maybe you're not as bold as what Brother Fergus is. Maybe. <laughs> The one that instantly comes to my mind, deliverance. Right? God, get me out of this situation. Get me out of this. Give me favor in their sight that they won't do the things that they said they would do. Right? Deliver me out of this. Keep it from happening. Right? Make everything go well. You know what it is that they actually prayed for? They prayed for a spine. They said, give us boldness, not brashness, boldness. They said, let us stand firm. Let us remain faithful even when the storms come. Let our house stand firm even whenever the rains uh, come and beat against it. Even when the winds blow, let our house stand firm. That's what they prayed for. Give us boldness. That's interesting to me. Because for a lot less things, we pray for deliverance. Mm -hmm. We pray for vengeance. We pray for all kinds of carnal means. But they said, let us just continue to be salt and light. Mm -hmm. Let us continue to stand and sound forth the gospel. Mm -hmm. Let us continue to follow you come what may, whether it leads us to a cross or to a dungeon, to a pit, to the, the headsman's axe, whatever it leads us to. Let us have boldness to follow you faithfully to the end, no matter what. And unfortunately for most of us today as Christians, I'll speak for myself specifically, it would take a lot less than that for me to cower, for me to run. Right? We have a bad day, we have a bad week, and we're already about to lose our testimony and to run away, aren't we? Small things happen. Just slight difficulties, hiccups in our plans, our plots, and our schedule come up, and we say, God, deliver us from us or from this. God, have vengeance upon my enemy. Lord, they cut me off in traffic, let their motor blow up. <laughs> right? Is that a little too close to home for anybody? <laughs> if you'll lose your testimony, you'll be in traffic. But anyway... Um, So we see what they didn't pray for. Instead, they prayed for boldness, and not just boldness to stand, not boldness to confront, but boldness to speak thy word. They didn't go after them. They didn't raise up a protest. They didn't march against them. They didn't try to throw them out of office. They said, God, just let us continue to remain consistent, to remain faithful, to continue to use our lives and our voice to sound forth the gospel, to sound forth the truth of your word. And so it's amazing to me the things that they were saying. Because whenever we would be in this kind of a situation, what we would be saying, we would be railing against them. Right? We would be trying to get things turned in our favor. We would try to get public opinion on our side, right? Try to make our voice heard. But instead of that, they said, just let us continue doing what's right consistently, faithfully. And then we're going to see the result of what God did in response to their prayer. So Acts chapter 4, we're down at verse 
31. And it says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay, and whenever they were filled with the Holy Ghost, what happened? They speak in tongues, roll around on the floor, bark like dogs. What did they do? No, it says they were filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. Whenever the Holy Ghost is in control, whenever the Holy Ghost fills us, he doesn't draw attention to himself, but instead he draws attention and glorifies God and the gospel, right? And so he enabled them, he empowered them to remain bold and to speak, to proclaim the word of God. And so as a result of this, them coming together, and I believe this persecution, do you believe there is anything good that came out of this? Do you think that persecution can ever be a good thing? Persecution definitely can be a good thing. Because what this caused them to, do you think the persecution was of God? That's a hard question, isn't it? He can allow it. His permissive will, right? Yeah. He can allow it. But the Bible tells us that he can work all things together for good. That can he? And so even though these people vehemently hated him, he didn't make them crucify him. He used their prejudices and their hatred to work his will. He can use evil to bring about good. That's just how big he is. That's how good he is, right? But then we find that he uses their prejudice and their evil once again coming against the church, taking away their comfort and their ease, and causing them to come together in unity. Right? Persecution unifies. It causes them to rely on one another, to rely on God. And so they came together in unity. And verse 32 says, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Something interesting with this, whenever they were threatened with their lives, all of a sudden their material possessions wasn't as important. Right. All of the things that they were trying to build up on this earth wasn't quite as important. It put things in the proper perspective. And they said, okay, we are serving God. We're going to have to band together. We're going to have to trust him. And we're going to have to take care of one another. And so they began taking care of one another, verse 33, and with great power gave the apostle witnesses over the, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so these are the, the responses. This is what God has done and wrought in them because of this persecution and their response to the persecution. So they're unified. They're all together. They're loving. They're caring for one another, have the same goal in mind. They, and I need to bring this out as well. You say, okay, well, they were, they were all alike anyway. They were uh, same culture. They were so similar. It was easy for them to be together. No. Because in the early church, we find that there was a lot of barriers and walls and prejudices being broken down. Right? Even though they were in Israel, even though they were in Jerusalem, even though it was still in its very infant stage, it's still primarily Jewish, you realize that there was a hierarchy amongst the Jewish people. There was lots of prejudices amongst the Jewish people. And there would have been slaves and owners. There would have been people from all, uh, all different places amongst the spectrum of society. And they were coming together 
and it had all things in common. Not only that, but Christianity was drawing in many of the outcasts, many of the have-nots as well as the haves. There were widows, there were orphans, there was the fatherless, there was the former lepers and the former uh, disabled people, right? And so there were all these different people coming together and trying to learn life together in Christ, and they forgot about their differences because of the persecution that was coming about them, because of the, the new faith that they had found in Christ, because of the work of the Holy Spirit within their hearts. And God was doing a work, and he brought unity in spite of their differences. Okay? And it's amazing how God can unify. Even, even us as a group of believers here, we come from several different continents, from many different countries, right? But the thing that brings us together and unifies us is the gospel. Right. Is the Holy Spirit within us, is the work that He is doing in our lives. And so we have a stronger bond in the family of God yeah. than what we have in whatever our passport says. Yeah. Right? Whatever culture we're from, even whatever uh, whatever place in society we fall, regardless of uh, what our occupations are, any of these things, God transcends all that and brings yes. it together. And so it says that there was great power. Why was there great power? Because they knew that their only power came from God and there was unity amongst the believers. Why has Satan tried to uh, fracture and divide the church so much? It's because a church that is unified is going to be powerful and is going to be a great tool and a great witness in this world. And if he can get us disunified, disjointed, over stupid things. I'm not talking about doctrine. We need to be straight on doctrine. But how often do we get disunified on stupid things? Mm-hmm. How often is there fighting and bickering and disunity about goofy stuff? We lose the plot. We get our eyes off of the prize. We get our eyes off of the one who really matters. And whenever we start doing that and start focusing too much on this world, too much on ourselves, too much on each other instead of on God, then there is no power then there is futility in the work. We are trying to do it of our own flesh because there is no Holy Spirit anywhere around that mess whenever there's fighting fighting and bickering and division, right? And so there was great power, and along with that great power, there was great grace. Great grace. They were gracious one to another, and that is one of the characteristics of Jesus Christ and the grace that he bestows upon us. The way that he is long-suffering toward us, the way that he is caring and concerned and watching out for. That's what they were doing. They were caring for one another. They were gracious one toward another. The Bible tells us that love will cover a multitude of sin, right? I believe that's right. And this is what was going on, is God was manifesting his love and his grace amongst this group of believers. Wouldn't it have been amazing to see them functioning that way, see the work of God going on? This would have been just such a sweet spirit, just such a great place to be, because it was very early on. It was the very infancy of the church, and everyone was kind of on an even playing field, and they were coming together. They were uncertain. They were feeling it out to themselves. I think at that time, there was no big eyes and little U's. Even if they had the apostles around, everyone was still trying to feel it out day by day. They were like, where is this going? How does this work? Whenever we start thinking we've got it figured out and we know everything, then we're in trouble. Right. They were at the place. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what the next day held. They were still 
day by day, hour by hour, saying, okay, we're on this journey. We started following God. Where is he going to lead us? What's he going to do? What's going to happen with all of this? Because they didn't know. I mean, we're looking at it from a 2,000-year perspective. We have a lot of church history behind us. We have a lot of things behind us that we can see. They didn't have that. I mean, they were just still in the... I guess it would have been a little bit exciting because they're going to be like, okay, what happens next? Because it could very easily go either way. God could bring judgment and he could work mightily against the people who crucified him or he could allow people who's following him to martyr. They, they don't know. They could continue growing exponentially and seeing the church grow until soon the whole world is taken over with the gospel. Or it could just cap off at a certain level and just kind of fizzle out. Over time. They, they didn't know what was going to happen. And all of that uncertainty caused them to band together and caused them to follow after God. And so as we see at the end of the chapter here, that we have the people are in this this idea of unity and of caring for one another. It says those who have land sell it. They brought the price, laid it at the apostles' feet. They made distribution to those who had need. And so it was almost a, a utopian type thing. Men have tried to reproduce this many times over, but the thing that they're missing, okay, the thing that they're missing is they are trying to legislate this. They are trying to force this. This was not forced. It was not legislated. It was done out of love. It wasn't prompted by anyone besides the Holy Spirit. And by the way, it wasn't commanded. So I'm not up here preaching saying, if you own anything, go and sell it and bring it and give it to me. That was never anywhere commanded in Scripture. Okay? And so whenever we see this here, this was organic. This was natural. This was coming about because of their love that they had for God, their trust that they had for Him, their desire to see the gospel go out, their desire to see their brothers and sisters taken care of and in health. They said, okay, whatever we can do. There was an excitement. They wanted to get involved. And this was a way that they got involved. Right? Right? Mm-hmm. When God has your heart, he's going to have everything. And whenever God had their heart, he had their wallets too. And so God was able to take that and use that and be a blessing to the whole group. And anyone looking on from the outside said, man, those guys are weird. Right? Because is there anywhere else in society where people are doing what they're doing? They're not some kind of a... uh, bunch of zealots that's trying to overthrow the government. They're not jockeying for power and position. They are simply living a godly and moral life, serving God, serving one another, and trying to glorify uh, God and call as many people to him as possible. And so many people are looking at this and they are confused by it maybe inspired by it. Many people are being drawn to it because they're saying, that is what my heart is crying after. That is what I desire. I would like to be a part of a group like that, right? Now, if society looks in and they see the way that churches often function and the divisiveness and the infighting and the bickering and the corruption and stuff that takes place in church, they're like, I can find that anywhere, There's nothing different about that. There's nothing abnormal. 
I mean, I can go to the pub and the group acts the same way. I can go to a family reunion they act the same way. At work, yeah, we have plenty of gossip and backbiting and fight. Hey, I can, why do I need to go to church? But if we are living like Christ, if we are allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, if we are caring for one another, if we are prioritizing the gospel, if we are glorifying God, that is going to be different. That is going to be different, and that is going to be powerful. That's going to make an impression. That's going to leave a mark. And people are going to be drawn to the place of decision. Either they're going to say, they're a bunch of weirdos, and I want no part of it, or, yes, they're weird, but it's a good weird, and I want to be a part of it. Right? Right? There is a dividing that takes place there. There's no way that you can sit on the fence whenever the church is truly living for God. And so we find at the end of this that Barnabas, a Levite, the son of consolation. What a nickname, right? <laughs> the encourager. Says that he was a Levite. He had land and he sold it. Levites weren't supposed to have land. They were supposed to live uh, by faith in God. Their provision was supposed to be the tithes and the offerings of the Jewish people. Well, that had been done away with. He had land. But it says, I'm going to live by faith now. He sold it. He brought the price and laid it at the, at the apostles' feet. And he wasn't the only one, but he's going to be a key member of the story. That's why this is brought out. Mm-hmm. And so the church is in a place of unity, of sweet fellowship, of great power. And so if Satan couldn't destroy them by conflict, if he couldn't destroy them by by this outward power and pressure that he was putting upon them, he is going to attempt to destroy them from within. So the internal conflict wasn't just inside the individuals, it was within the church. And so I I don't know that I can fully go into this, we'll see, but I've got a few minutes and we're going to look in chapter number five. And what is the first word of chapter number five? But things are going so good This church would have been a wonderful place to be a part of everything. Yes, there's persecution, there's hardship, and things going on. But these people are caring for one another. They are glorifying God. And there would have been sweet fellowship. There would have been great things happening. But, and so I believe Satan butts in. And so if he can't get them to quit following God because of the outward conflict, because of the pressure, because of the persecution, he is going to try to corrupt them. He's going to try to pervert what God has been doing. And so in chapter number five, a familiar story, it says, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie unto the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not in thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came upon all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answering unto her, or answered unto her, 
Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have, bru- excuse me, which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then, then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. So we talked about how all these things were going so well. Things were going so good. There was unity, and people were being insanely generous at this time. And the ones who were being generous were being praised, were being honored, were receiving glory. Obviously, right? Because if someone came in and sold their possession, gave the amount of it to the church to be distributed, to take care of the widows and the fatherless and all those things, we would think well of them, right? There's plenty of churches that's got like uh, uh, bronze badges or whatever plates on the end of the pews saying so-and-so gave this much or they've got a, a plaque on the bell tower. They've got all these different things telling about donations and whatnot. And so as Ananias and Sapphira, and I believe they were true believers, uh, I'm not going to argue one way. I can't be uh, dogmatic about it, but I believe they were believers. But at this time, they allowed pride and greed to enter into their hearts. And they said, hey, look at what's happening here. There is a way that we can be lifted up. We can receive honor. We can receive glory. We can really be someone in this movement. And so we've got land. Let's sell it, and we're going to give the money, but we're not going to give all of it. But people will think bad of us if we don't give to the extent of other people So we're going to claim that we give all of it, and we won't tell anybody we kept part of it back. And so they hatched this plan, this plan of hypocrisy, right? That's what it was. It was a plan of hypocrisy. By pride and by greed, they said one thing, and they did another. Is hypocrisy not one of the greatest threats to the unity and the power of the church? And so this enters in subtly at first. They said, hey, we're still doing a good thing. No one else is going to know about it. We'll receive a little bit of praise. Everybody else will receive a little bit of help, and it's going to be great. The thing that they're not factoring in is <clears throat> the thing they're not factoring in is the effect that it is going to have on the spirit and the unity of the church. Exactly. Now, this isn't a passage to preach to bring fear into everybody that if you do this or if you do that, God's going to strike you dead. Now, I've heard it preached that way before. (laughs) But what we find throughout Scripture is that whenever God is doing something great or He is doing something new, oftentimes He will judge in an extreme fashion. Morning. But he'll judge in an extreme fashion to kind of let everybody know his feelings on the matter, okay? Are you following me with this? You look back throughout the Old Testament, you find Sodom and Gomorrah. Was Sodom and Gomorrah the only evil cities on the face of the planet at that time that deserved to be wiped out and judged by God? No. No, but they were an example to Lot and to Abraham of the power of the leaven of sin entering in amongst them and God's feelings about sin 
and about the corruption that enters into the church. That was what they were, he was getting across to them. We can look at the flood as well in, in Noah's day. That was extreme, wasn't it? It shows us God's thought about sin, how he feels about sin. We tend to go soft with sin. We tend to play with sin a little bit. We tend to try to make ex excuses. We tend to try to play it down. But if sin is so wicked that it is enough to send men to hell, if God hates it so much that he knew that he was going to have to give his life to be crucified, to be buried, to rise again the third day, to purge sin, to bring salvation, that there was no way that mankind could cleanse themselves, but he was willing to do that because of how much he loved mankind. We get an idea of how sinful, how egregious sin really is. Right. Right? Yeah. And so down throughout time, there were different places that we can point to where God dealt in judgment immediately. Now, most of the time through Scripture, we find God dealing with great mercy, right? Yeah. But we can find times such as whenever David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant oh, yeah. into Jerusalem, and he didn't follow the Word of God. He didn't obey how the, the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried, right? Mm -hmm. And he put it on a cart, and as one of the oxen stumbled, the cart was about to lose, I guess, lose the covenant, right? And one of David's men put forth his hand and touched what was holy and what was not to be touched by anyone except for the consecrated priests. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And God struck him dead immediately. Right. And fear fell upon all the people. What was God doing? He says, I'm not playing. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm not allowing you to take things lightly. Whenever uh, Korah rose up with his, uh, with his fellows there against Moses and said, you take too much upon yourself. We can fall, or we can lead the people. We're just as godly as you are. What did God do? He opened up the ground and he swallowed them. You say, well, God, that's extreme. Yeah. Well, the people got the message, didn't they? And God told them, Moses is my chosen man. He is doing the job that I have given him to do. And so rather than sowing discord and division, follow him, right? Now, I'm not bringing that to a New Testament sense and trying to work up this whole thing of pastoral authority. That's a mess. But anyway, what we find here is God is showing them that he needs to keep his people pure, yeah. that he takes sin seriously, yes, and that we need to as well. Yeah. And so whenever it comes to Ananias and Sapphira, were they the only ones that lied to the Holy Spirit? Were they the only ones that were hypocrites? No. Amongst the people. No. no. But their sin risked corrupting the unity and corrupting the power and the working that God was doing at that time. And so God judged it immediately. And it says that the people feared. They said, God is a holy God. Yes, we love him. Yes, he loves us. Yes, we are a family. Yes, we have this unity. He's doing great things, but we still can't go soft on sin. Yeah. Right? And so they feared from that time. And so this passage isn't about, uh, about our giving. It's not about any of these other things that we try to make it about. What this passage tells us is that whenever we are unified, whenever we are pure, whenever our attention and our eyes are on God, God can do great things through his church, 
but sin is dangerous. The Bible tells us a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That if you let a little bit of sin in, it corrupts completely. If you do any baking or anything, know anything about leavening, a little tiny bit of leaven, you put it in your loaf, in your bread, and you mix it through it, and it it affects the entirety of that loaf, right? It changes uh, its characteristics. It changes the, its taste. It changes uh, everything about it, right? Sin has the same effect in our lives and also amongst us as a congregation of believers. And so we need to guard against that and know how serious the sin is. Yes, he has died for our sins. Yes, he has forgiven our sins for whosoever has called upon the name of the Lord. But sin still has consequences in this earth and in our lives. And whenever we allow them to come in as subtle as they are, even if we can excuse them, even if we can uh, make up all these different reasons why it's not so bad, it still is. And so we need to hate sin to the extent that God hates sin. We need to realize that something just as simple, what was, a, what was the, the sin that they committed? Was it murder? Theft? Adultery? They lied. But God, look at how much they gave. What did, what did Peter tell them? What did Peter tell them? He told them that you were never required to sell it to begin with. It was your land. You could have done with it whatever you wanted. It didn't matter. You could have done whatever you wanted. And whenever you sold it, you could have kept the money. You could have given a tenth. You could have given 5%. You could have gave 50%. You could have gave 100%. It was up to you to do whatever you wanted with it. None of it was required. And he said, what? stepped over the line was whenever you determined to lie. When you determined to be a hypocrite, whenever you tried to use the things of God to advance your own agenda, when you tried to use God's church and God's name to try to buy for yourself glory and praise, whenever you tried to build yourself up by using the things that belong only to God, that's where you overstepped the line. Now, thinking about it that way, if God was still in the business of striking people dead like he did Ananias and Sapphira, the world population would be different. (laughs) There'd be a lot less prosperity preachers, false prophets, religious leaders, right? Because there's a lot of people, be a lot less politicians. Mm -hmm. How many people have you saw that are extremely religious about the time it comes up for an election? They're using the things of God for their own personal gain. Mm-hmm. God doesn't take that lightly. Right. And so in this, we find that the church was powerful because it was in prayer. It was in unity. And whatever perversion came in, God purged it. Yeah. God cleansed it. And so I guess our challenge for this today as we look at this is to value the power and the presence of God, Mm -hmm. to aim for purity in our lives and our obedience, to hate sin, Mm -hmm. right? And to see it as God sees it. Recognize 
its consequences. Recognize what it does in the life of the believers. Whenever we allow a little sin into our lives, it is going to have big consequences. So, does anyone have anything to, to add to or take away or subtract or divide? Or... <laughs> no, no division. Anyway. Well, I suppose, I mean, we talked about um, the judgment. Um, what Peter says, remember, you lied to the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Ghost. And I mean, that was the, the, not only were they trying to deceive the people, but they were trying to. Thought they could get one over on God. Yeah, get one over on God. And I think that's, you know, mm -hmm. that's um, part of the, the issue there. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a very good point as well, is whenever we think we can fool God, it's not going to happen. Anything else? Okay, well, if there's nothing else, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll take a short break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings, and we do thank you so much, Lord, for this time uh, together in church. Lord, we thank you for all the folks that have come out, Lord, and Lord, for the opportunity that we have to be in your word and to be looking into it, Lord, help us to learn these lessons, help us to, to see it for what it is, Lord, and Lord, that we draw closer to you, Lord, that we would uh, hate and despise sin in our lives, Lord, that we would uh, judge our own selves, Lord, and uh, I just pray, Lord, that we would seek your power and your way, your guidance, Lord, and seek your glory. We thank you so much for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen.